John's Gospel, chapter 15. Sunday nights through the Bible, uh, Genesis to uh, Revelation. Again, chapters 13 through 17 of uh, the book, A Gospel According to John, are completely unique to John's gospel. Uh, they are not duplicated in any of the other gospels at all, and they constitute Jesus' teaching of the disciples in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem on the night before his crucifixion. That's saying a lot about a context, the emotional uh, environment and the need and everything that is going on in that room in terms of the importance of what he is saying and the need of, of the, his disciples in, in hearing these things. Because this uh, sermon, so to speak, or this uh, discourse that Jesus gave to his disciples occurred in an upper room in Jerusalem, it is commonly known as the upper room discourse. You might remember that in chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus informed the disciples. It sets the context for the entire section. So this is why I go back to it repeatedly so that we don't lose uh, the thread of the whole. He has spoken to the disciples of a coming separation, physical separation of himself from them and anticipation of his separation from them during the three days and three nights uh, between his death upon the cross and his resurrection, but even more so uh, uh, of the now almost 2,000-year separation of us as Christians in terms of our relationship with him and the absence of a, a physical element to uh, that uh, that relationship. And so as Jesus spoke to them about this separation uh, and uh, uh, all they had ever known was this physical relationship with Jesus, him being physically present, and so it troubled their hearts. And so uh, John, uh, Jesus begins to, in, in chapter 14, spoke to them of seven uh, major words of comfort to them. Uh, first, Jesus comforted them in the fact that his care for them wouldn't cease during this uh, separation. He would care for them as he always had. Second, Jesus informed them that he was leaving them to return to heaven uh, to his father's house to prepare that place for them. Third, that he would one day return and receive them and us to himself that we might be there uh, with him as well. And then uh, fourth, that the works of Jesus uh, that he had done during his public ministry, that they would continue uh, on until the day of the rapture of the church and his second coming, but those works would be accomplished now through his disciples, through us. He then uh, comforted them with the knowledge that access to his wisdom and his power would be uh, uninterrupted. Uh, that is uh, effectual as it was for them to talk to him face to face, uh, 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 being able to access these things would be uh, just as effectually accessed through prayer. And then he comforted them uh, that we can express our love for him uh, through our obedience to his commandments. And then finally, that he would provide us with another helper in the person of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 14, verse 17, Jesus declared something that was just a kind of a seismic event uh, in the middle of an, a, a teaching uh, that was seismic when he informed them that their relationship was going to change from one of being face-to-face -face with him to now being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, later on in the same uh, uh, upper room discourse in chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus is going to tell the disciples in us that his physical departure from them and from us uh, is actually uh, for their good, for our good, because it would then result in Jesus sending his uh, Holy Spirit uh, to us. The single great advantage to this new relationship with Jesus by the Holy Spirit is in the fact that the Holy Spirit would be as Jesus declared in chapter 14, verse 17, that the Holy Spirit would be with us and he would be, with, he would be in us. 
During Jesus' public ministry, during his 33 and a half years on the earth, even as close as the relationships became between he and the disciples, they were always him with them. Uh, They never enjoyed Jesus inside uh, of them. With the coming of the Holy Spirit now, the Holy Spirit would be with them, but now also inside of them. And so receiving God's wisdom, receiving his power, his direction, all of these things from within and, uh, and to, to receive uh, these things from God into our lives individually. You think about what God uh, keeps track of uh, with 7 billion people on the face of the planet and how many of them are Christians uh, and, and yet he leads us and guides us individually and then in that Holy Spirit indwelling all of us, there's a corporate angle to it as well because by, by virtue of this fact, he is able to keep our actions, our movements, our ministries all coordinated with one another and what it is that he's endeavoring to do all around the world. And since this is the uh, foundation for the only kind of relationship with Jesus that we have ever known, uh, we have never in this age, in this age of separation physically, we have never known what it is to encounter uh, Jesus face to face in the physical way uh, that they did, but having experienced all of these other things that Jesus uh, promised them now in this new relationship with him, uh, we could re- have, if we were in that uh, upper room, we could have reassured the disciples uh, that this Christianity isn't half bad. Uh, Jesus has taken very good care of us in this period of separation, and there's great wisdom in him doing things as he has done them. Everything's going to be okay. And we pick up with that, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus declared famously, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples." As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. And so Jesus declares himself here to be the true vine. And it's a a beautiful, again, well-known passage uh, uh, in, in the scriptures and in the gospel according to John. It represents the final uh, of Jesus' seven I am statements in uh, the book of John. And uh, all of what Jesus is talking about here in terms of the imagery of the grapes, of the vine, of the branches, all of it is Old Testament imagery. We will never understand the passage without understanding something about that Old Testament uh, imagery. The grapevine, along with the olive tree and the pomegranate tree, in the Old Testament scriptures were uh, used very, very often as symbols for uh, the nation of Israel because those plants grow uh, very, very well in the land of, uh, of Israel. Uh, example of this is Psalm 80, verse 8. 
you have brought a vine, speaking of Israel, speaking of the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. Isaiah, again in a well-known passage, Isaiah chapter 5, uh, declared on behalf of the Lord, let, uh, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard, speaking of Israel. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful uh, hill. Uh, Isaiah goes on to declare, uh, oh, uh, and now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard, uh, Israel. What more could I uh, could have been done for my vineyard that I have not done in it. And then he goes on to speak repeatedly of, of the nation of Israel as a vineyard. God had done everything necessary for the nation of Israel to be fruitful for his purposes uh, in, in the world under that old uh, covenant. And so he even asked, what more could I have done to my vineyard that I haven't already done for it, for the purpose of it being a distinctive people in the world that represents me before that, uh, the world. And uh, just as the vine acts as a mediator between the enormous resources of the earth uh, into the branches in order to, to bear fruit, to bear grapes, God is saying that he had intended the nation of Israel uh, to become a blessing, a spiritual blessing to all of the nations of the world, that God would be able to express his heart through them, uh, to bless the nations of the world through them, and uh, to draw all people into worship of him through them so that men could come into contact with the nation of Israel, the people of that nation, and come into contact with God uh, as a result and discover that God is very, very good. But the religious system of the Jews in Jesus' day, constituting supremely uh, the, the diff two sects under the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, they didn't represent the heart of God uh, any longer. They had ceased a long time ago to have any concern at all about pointing people uh, to, uh, to God. They had actually become a hindrance to men and women coming into contact with God rather than a help. And one of the reasons was is because they elevated their man-made traditions uh, above uh, the word uh, of God. And so to come into contact with the Jewish religious system at the time of Jesus here was not to come into contact with God or his word, but to come into contact with their man-made traditions. And so they were no longer being true to what God had called them to be under the old covenant, and that is to be a true vine. And so here you have a religious system that claimed to represent God, and yet it was at that very moment uh, planning uh, the murder of the Son of God, the crucifixion of uh, the Son of of God. And so when Jesus declares himself to be the true vine, it's true in the sense of the fact that he is real, that he is genuine. And what he's saying is, as the vine uh, puts the branches into relationship with the earth and all of its resources necessary for physical uh, fruit, so too I will bring your lives into relationship with heaven and all the spiritual resources that are necessary for spiritually fruitful uh, life. And so just as you have to have the right stock, and vintners are very, very concerned about planting the right stock uh, in their, their vineyards, you've got to begin with the right stock in a physical vineyard. You have to begin with the right stock spiritually as well. Jesus is that stock, and the Jewish religious leaders uh, were not. Jesus alone can put us into contact with God the Father, bring us into relationship with him, and then access all of the spiritual riches of heaven. When he says that my father is the vine dresser, 
there in uh, verses 1 and 2. What a vine dresser was was somebody who tended the vines, kind of like what a gardener is to a, a, a garden. They, they tend and take care uh, of the vineyard and of the vines. His responsibility is to tend the vine and the branches so that they'll uh, bear fruit. And so uh, it is the Father, God the Father, who works in our lives uh, in, in order that our lives will bear spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Christ-likeness. It's important to God that our lives bear spiritual fruit as Christians. You see the, the repetition of uh, fruit all the way through the passage. In verse 2, fruit. Verse 2, more fruit. Verse 5 and 8, much fruit. Verse 16, which we didn't even get to tonight, uh, the, that, that fruit will remain. And so Jesus is assuming that everybody that is reading this passage and listening to him then but reading it today, he assumes that being fruitful is the desire uh, and, and the concern uh, of every uh, Christian. And if that desire isn't present in us, then this passage will be of very, very little interest to us. So that raises the question in the, uh, of what is this fruit Jesus is talking about? Paul wrote to the, the churches in Galatia, uh, and, and he listed uh, the fruit that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. That is quite a list of what the Holy Spirit brings into our life and produces within our lives supernaturally. And, uh, and so the idea being that as this character, as these characteristics of our life that are identical to the life of ministry, that we would then carry this kind of fruit, this kind of character into every relationship in our life, every environment that we find ourselves in uh, in, in life, and uh, into every ministry that we're involved in, and that it will bring glory to God. Now, you notice it, it, the work of the vine dresser related to uh, the branch is given to us in verses 2 and 6. And remember, we're the branch, and the Father is the vine dresser. So he tells us that if a branch doesn't bear fruit, he takes it away. And so uh, this appears to refer to the person who professes to be a Christian uh, or a disciple of Jesus. They profess to be a branch, and yet there's no fruit indicating any kind of a connection uh, with the vine. And so the Father, uh, he comes in, and ultimately he removes the fruitless branch and, and the dead wood. And of course, uh, Judas Iscariot would be a, a prime example of this kind of thing. And then those branches are gathered together, we're told, and then they're thrown into the fire, and this speaks of, of judgment. It's interesting that uh, through all of that, as you're uh, looking at, at that in this uh, passage, especially down in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch uh, and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are uh, burned. And so uh, you see the branches are referred to as he and as they and as them. In other words, uh, Jesus is no longer talking to the disciples in that upper room. He's talking about a different group uh, of people. And so uh, where there's no fruit, that is, there's no abiding in Christ, no personal relationship with him, uh, that kind of person should be concerned about whether uh, they are really a Christian or simply self-deceived. Um, I would hold, uh, contend that it is, based on the scriptures, that it is impossible, as I, as I put it, impossible for God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit to come into a person's life and for there not to be any change in their life. And because there's just going to be change. There will be fruit. And so Jesus isn't talking about here, talking about the he and they and them here. 
uh, in, in this, he isn't talking about having small fruit or limited fruit. He's talking about people who have zero fruit, no fruit. And the reason I mention this is that what happens when you talk about this kind of a thing, there's a, there are the sweet little saints who think, as so often we do and, and should, you know, we always want to be further along than we are, more fruit in our lives that we, than we actually have. And, and then we come to a passage like this and we think, he's talking about me because, um, because I'm struggling in my Christian life or these different kinds of things. And that's not at all what he's talking about here. And, and, uh, and that's why he gave them uh, the reassurance of, of verse 3 to them. For you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Notice also in verse 2 that every branch that does bear fruit, every one of our Christian lives that bears fruit, he prunes, God the Father does, for the purpose that it bears more uh, fruit. Now you have, you have some versions of the Bible and you have uh, some Bible teachers who they, they contend that the word prunes uh, there in verse 2 should be translated, better translated, uh, cleanses or washes, kind of in line with the word clean there in, in verse 3. And so the argument goes like this, uh, that the Greek word, kathaero, uh, uh, which means to cleanse, to, and it carries the idea specifically of pruning or to uh, expiate or to purge. And so to purge, uh, we get our English word catharsis from that Greek word and uh, and from the cleansing process. And so uh, the Lord isn't telling us here, they would contend, that the Father will prune us, but that he washes us that we may bear more fruit. The problem with that view uh, is that uh, the King James word purge there. Uh, and it can just as easily be translated prune, uh, just as it is in the New King James uh, Bible. And additionally, while vine dressers, even to this day, and as they're tending uh, their uh, uh, crop and their, their uh, farm, so to speak, there, their vineyard, uh, they water and they irrigate their vineyards through drip systems. Uh, No one who raises grapes today would ever uh, wash the leaves of the fruit or uh, or the fruit that are on the branches because after a certain point in the maturation process uh, of the fruit, moisture is anathema. Uh, Once the summer months come in, if there's a freak rain in California where grapes are being uh, grown, the vine dresser immediately begins to dust uh, all of the the, uh, vineyard in order to prevent mildew. It's a catastrophe and uh, rain on the fruit itself as as the harvest draws closer, it causes the skin to split on the grape and it will ruin it. No vintner would purposely add moisture to plants, to the leaves, or to the fruit uh, of a uh, a vine. Now, uh, just as you, uh, in all of this we see on on full display, if you've ever uh, been around a vineyard or spend any time studying that that kind of thing, uh, one thing you will never see in a vineyard is vineyard workers going through the vineyard and washing the leaves or washing the fruit. You have never seen that sight. But there is an annual sight you see every year where they pull those pruners out and they go through there uh, uh, late in the winter and they prune back all of those branches. And that's what he's talking about uh, here, both uh, uh, true of of all of that both then uh, and now. You notice in verse 2, he speaks about the fact that every branch, and just in case you thought there might be a release clause on this, that he prunes uh, every branch. And so the Lord is going to prune every single one of us as uh, Christians, even those of us who are doing perfectly fine, Uh, even those of us who are bearing uh, fruit, uh, even more fruit in the desire then to produce 
uh, uh, much fruit. So all of this is, uh, uh, goes on even uh, it, however highly motivated and uh, wonderful a person's Christian life might be. And so uh, what is pruning? Pruning is simply cutting away what is useless for uh, fruit. And so just as the vine dresser, he prunes the branches in order to produce greater uh, fruitfulness, God is going to cut stuff out of our lives in order to produce greater spiritual growth in our lives and to make us more fruitful uh, spiritually. And he's faithful to do that. And sometimes you can doubt uh, the wisdom uh, with which he uh, wields those uh, shears if you ever go in, and now, of course, uh, many of the vineyards, uh, they'll either be pruned uh, very, very soon or they've already been pruned. And you see them before they've been pruned. You've got these branches going out in all directions. And then you come in after the husbandman has gone through and you think they've mutilated the entire plant. They have just destroyed the plant. And yet what they have done is cut back uh, uh, on uh, uh, from the plant what is now useless to producing much fruit in order that new growth will come out and, and, uh, and, and much fruit will occur uh, a, a, as well in the coming year. When the Holy Spirit speaks to us, when the Lord puts his finger in our, on our lives, when that way that we can recognize and he puts an air, his finger on some area in our life. And here it's not talking about sin so much as because that's a given. Here it's talking about liberties, things that we're free to engage in uh, as, as Christians. But they may not be helpful for us, for our spiritual life. And he puts his finger upon a liberty and he declares, I want to remove that uh, from your life. And when he does that, it is always in order that our lives might be more fruitful uh, as a, a, a result. If you leave a vineyard unpruned, the branches are going to grow in all kinds of different directions, and so much energy is going to go uh, into the wood of the plant itself uh, rather than into the producing of fruit. So he keeps cutting this stuff uh, away, and it keeps the life and the vitality of the plant directed toward uh, its purpose, and that is to bear fruit. And so spiritually, if the Lord didn't keep pruning stuff out of our lives, even things that are just perfectly okay to engage in uh, as, as a Christian, we would find all of our time going into anything and everything but what he's called us to uh, for his glory. We would become, spiritually speaking, we'd become a, a, a jack of all trades and master of, of none. And if we give our life entirely to liberties, uh, then we won't even become a jack of all trades, uh, spiritually speaking. I remember when I first got saved in Calvary Chapel of Napa, I used to play a lot of basketball back in those days, and, and I had a knack for it. And in fact, when I went to Calvary Chapel of, of Modesto, or Napa rather, uh, originally, it's because I wanted to get back with the Lord and get going with the Lord or whatever my spiritual condition was at that time. But I also knew they had a pretty good basketball team there. And, uh, and, and so I was looking for any game I could find at that time in my life. And now I could be in the city league and in the church league as well. And there were good players in, in both of those leagues. And I remember that when I first became a Christian, uh, the Lord put his finger on uh, becoming a part of their, the church league team. And he said, I don't want you to do that. It's a liberty. A freedom to do that. There's no verse in the Bible that says you can't play basketball as a new Christian. A and yet, I didn't know yet how to play basketball as a Christian. I knew how to play it as a pagan, but not as a Christian. And what he wanted to do was just take me aside and then just teach me, have me grow spiritually. And so I put it aside. And then later, a couple of years later, uh, I was able to get back on the team with, in a spiritually uh, good place. He was just pruning uh, in my life. And that pruning, I'll tell you, it hasn't stopped to this day. And, uh, you know, the, the more uh, ADHD or ADD our minds are, everything looks like an opportunity and this and that and everything. 
We're, we're putting so much wood out, some of us, in terms of our lives, that he's got to pull a machete out to keep us focused. And all the options of this culture, back in those days, what were they going to do in terms of liberties? You worked from sunup to sundown, and then you slept and you got up. Look at the liberties that we have in this culture. Think about the entertainment, the music, the movies, the TV, the magazines, the reading, the, all of this kind of stuff. And we can fritter our entire lives away into this comparative wood that accomplishes, produces no fruit within our lives and doesn't produce greater maturity in our lives. And so he keeps cutting away and cutting away and cutting away. And uh, if you're feeling that in your life, I mean, that, that's, uh, it's a reflection on God's love for you, but it's a reflection on your capacity to, to get d- distracted. And, of course, it's important in our lives. God has called each and every one of us generally with one, two, three things that at any given point in our lives that he wants our lives to be focused on for his purposes and for his, uh, his uh, glory. And, uh, and, it, it, and if he doesn't prune us so that we stay focused on those things, we'll put our focus on 20 different things or 10 different things and, and we won't accomplish anything Uh, for God. And so these things that would distract us from spiritual maturity, distract us from his call upon our lives, uh, he keeps pruning uh, that away. And so he knows that merciless pruning is a part of fruitfulness in the Christian life. And I'm grateful uh, uh, for it. And so the Lord wants us to know that uh, when you get that tap on the shoulder and the father wants to prune something, don't resist him. He knows what he's doing here. And, and he only does it for our good. You notice in verse 3 uh, that he says to the disciples, you are already clean or already uh, pruned. And so the Greek word clean in verse 3, it's a variation of the Greek word uh, prunes in verse 2. And so uh, in the uh, epistle to the Hebrews, uh, the word of God is declared to be sharper than any two-edged sword and able to cut and divide. And Probably the, the single great instrument that God uses for pruning in our lives is, um, is his word. So I'm, I'm presently, and I try to make a regular habit of it, but right now uh, in my devotional time, I'm going slowly through the book of Proverbs. That's a pruning book, <laughs> let me tell you. That's a great, great book for pruning, but the whole Bible is. Uh, in, in our lives. And so uh, his word is an instrument, the supreme instrument he uses to accomplish that. You notice in verses 14 through 17 here, he, Jesus then now begins to focus on one key aspect to uh, fruitfulness in the Christian life, uh, this thing called abiding. And so the word abide, he uses it some 10 times in uh, these 11 verses. And uh, and so it's very, very central to what it is that he's teaching here about fruitfulness. The word abide is a Greek word that means to settle down and make myself at home. So when somebody invites you into their house on a cold winter night, there's a fire going on in, in the fireplace and they put you in a chair right there and they ask you for if you want a hot drink or anything else to make you comfortable and then what you're allowed to do is abide to just settle down and make yourself at home in this uh, environment that is conducive uh, to that and so it refers this abiding does to maintaining a that kind of a relationship uh, with Jesus, to have this healthy, unbroken, uh, living relationship with him. So imagine we're all out in a vineyard right now, and uh, we're all standing in late summer with Jesus out in a vineyard, and he takes us out to one particular uh, vine and branches. And there's this huge cluster of grapes here at the, uh, at the end of one of, of the branches, 
and, and he would put his fingers, somebody might ask him, well, what's the key to this kind of fruitfulness related to this, uh, this vine? And Jesus would say, you come a little bit closer here and I'll show you. And we'd gather around him, bated breath, uh, what in the world is the key to fruit like that? And then spiritually speaking as well, he'd put his finger on that great cluster of grapes and then he'd begin to trace his finger back all the way along the branch, all the way to where it connects to the vine. And he says, that's the key. The key is the health of that relationship. The health of the relationship between the branch and the vine. The health of the relationship that we have with Jesus as the true vine. That's the key, the single great key to fruitfulness uh, in the Christian life. Everything comes out of uh, that relationship. And so Jesus is telling us that the health of our relationship with him is the key to, um, to spiritual uh, fruitfulness. And there's the old saying that Christianity is a relationship with God, and it is exactly that. At its core, that's what it is. Everything has to flow from that. No one, no Christian will ever rise above the health of our relationship with God, at least not for any length of time. None of us will. Everything hinges on that relationship. And then Jesus enlarges in the rest of this section, he enlarges upon uh, the subject of uh, 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 abiding. And so since Jesus told us that apart from him, we can do nothing, since abiding is so important to him, it raises the question, how in the world do I abide? So we could look and say, okay, the most important thing is that abiding, that relationship right there. The pastor said it. We head out to our car and we determine, I'm going to be the greatest abider in the history of the church, uh, Christian church. I'm going to write books on abiding. And we make it halfway to our car and we realize we don't even know what that looks like practically in terms of our lives. What is he talking about? when he talks about abiding? What's he talking about? What is our part in, in maintaining the health of that, that relationship? And he tells us uh, three particular ways in which it occurs. The first is in verse 7. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Uh, and so uh, the first key to abiding is his words must abide in us. That means that the Word of God for us as Christians, and if you adhere to this, you will be deemed a religious nut even by other Christians. But it's what Jesus declares here. And what he's talking about here is making the Word of God the single greatest influence in our lives. Until we're familiar with it, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, till we know the characters of the Bible uh, and, and better than we know the characters on any television show or any novel series uh, that we're reading, until we know God's position on all of the subjects he addresses in the Bible better than we know the political positions of those that we listen to on, on talk radio, until we know our Bibles better than we know anything else in life, till we know more about God than we know about any other person in the world, any movie star, any singer, uh, any kind of person that's put before us within the culture and until the word of God dominates our thinking and our speaking and our hearing and our doing. Until it takes and it rules and governs the very core of our, our lives. Uh, Paul put it to the church at Colossae. He said, let the word of God dwell in you richly. And so how do we uh, give the word of God this kind of place in our life? Well, first by reading it on my own every day on a bit daily basis, just reading it for not to prepare sermons or not to do this or that, but just to, just to read it out of my own personal relationship uh, with him as a part of my devotional life. 
And then by studying the Word of God, I wouldn't want to venture the, the, the guess uh, to guess that where as Christians we uh, can look at uh, d- establishing a devotional life, a daily time with God in His Word, meeting Him uh, with Him in His Word, and then uh, praying to Him. And then uh, once that gets established in our life as Christians, how few Christians will realize that there's, there's an even greater place that the Word of God ought to take in our lives. To actually study it, to study it, to find out what these doctrines mean. What does this book mean? What is the theme? What is the main point of Philippians? What is the main point of Colossians? What is the main point of Romans? Uh, What is the main point of Proverbs? And to know these things and to know uh, the Bible uh, that uh, that well. I remember when Karen and I both got going with the Lord back in 1980, and um, uh, one of the first things that I did, and, and this is a great thing to do in our own lives, build a theological library, buy good commentaries, and we can recommend them to you, You can find out online as well what the best ones are on any given book or the Bible as a whole. I remember I bought Harry Ironside's entire set. All you could do was buy hard copies of anything back in those days. And then we just wrote on tablets of stone and uh, put our sermons together. So, and then the next one was the the pulpit commentary set. I just wanted... Uh, independent of a call as a pastor or anything like that, I just wanted to learn this Bible. And so there would be time where there would be, I'd get overtime when I worked for the phone company and then be able to afford these things and began to build uh, that out in my uh, life. Of course, today in terms of media, you can download solid, excellent teaching all over the internet And we have the advantage of growing in the Word of God as fast as we want to as Christians today. You think of back in Spurgeon's day or back in those times and even more remote uh, parts of of England and America than London was for Spurgeon. Um, They got two sermons a week. And you had to wait the next week to hear another sermon and to learn what the Bible had to say. And today we can, if you commute to the Bay Area, you can listen to uh, 10 Bible studies a day and head through the whole Bible in no time. I mean, it's a, a tremendous privilege that we have today. And, uh, but to immerse ourselves uh, in uh, the Word of God in that way, His Word must abide in us. And then second, he tells us there at the end of verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done to you. The second way to abide, to ensure the health of that relationship is uh, prayer. In the abiding life, prayer is, is key to the health of that relationship and the abiding life also produces a very effective uh, prayer life. When his words uh, abide in me, then uh, his desires will become my desires, and my prayers will be more in accordance with his will and his promises, and, uh, and that will give me a great boldness and authority in, in my prayer life uh, with the Lord. And then he tells us the third uh, great means of abiding is in verse 3. By, I mean, number 3 is in verse 10, by simply obeying his commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And sim- simply, if I was to say just one thing to walk away from, if you can only remember one thing related to ab- uh, uh, abiding, is that uh, abiding is obeying. It is obeying God's word. And abiding begins with knowing God's word, uh, but knowing God's word will not make a difference in our life until uh, we obey it. And uh, like nothing else that we can do, obedience to God's word assures the health uh, of our relationship with Jesus. And so abiding is uh, obeying. He tells us in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. 
The result of an abiding life is that it glorifies the Father. Uh, People look at our lives, and when we become Christians, and they see the change that has occurred in our life that the Holy Spirit has produced, or uh, we we get... uh, enter into different environments that we're already been a Christian for a lot of years now and we're in contact with these different kind of, uh, of, of people and uh, they see this life that we live, a life that we, by the Holy Spirit consistent with Christ here and the first thought might be that it's an act but then after a while when they see it with consistency they wonder what in the world is to account for a human life like that and then Uh, Somewhere along the way, they find out that we're a Christian and that God produces a life like that. So as dark as the world is getting spiritually and even darker, our, our country is getting darker and darker, one of the advantages is, if we take advantage of it, is that our life will be uh, more distinctive as being Christian and being different in a good way than maybe any generation of Americans since the very beginning. And so, but it has to be more than knowing. It has to be uh, o- o- obeying as well. And then that produces a life that glorifies the fathers. I remember many years ago, I uh, uh, saw a story about A.C. Green. Uh, he was a forward uh, on the uh, Los Angeles Lakers basketball team. And he's a very committed Christian uh, at, at, at the time, and he remains so. And um, it's, if he wasn't a Christian and he was on the Lakers, pfft, why would I have any interest in in all? But I do root for Christians. On, and he was a great, great power forward for them and their championships. And he was playing in a game, and he took a, a terrible, terrible shot to the mouth by a player called J.R. Reed. J.R. Reed was known to be uh, take cheap shots on the court. And uh, when he took the cheap shot on uh, A.C. Green, two of, of AC's, A.C. Green's teeth flew out onto the court. And then he walked over to where his teeth lay on the floor. He picked them up, and then he headed for the locker room. And uh, later, when he was interviewed by ESPN, he was asked, uh, what kept you from punching J.R. Uh, Reed? And he said, I thought to myself that this was the test for whether I was going to live what I had been saying all those years. And if you want to know the impact that it made, it made an impact on one of the funniest guys uh, in the league at that time. Apparently, when Charles Barkley saw A.C. Green the next time, he said, now I believe you're a Christian, based upon all of that. This abiding also, you notice in uh, verse 9, it allows us to experience the fullness of Jesus' love in our life. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Uh, Abide in my love. And so when somebody loves us the way that God loves us, um, the worst thing that we could ever deny them is the full expression of their love in our lives. And, and abiding and obeying allows God to express the fullness of his love uh, in, in our uh, lives. And then in verse 11, uh, abiding results finally in a life of uh, joy. These things I have said to you, uh, spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And there's a quality of life uh, that comes out of abiding, the joy the joy of knowing that I am right with God and I am doing right to other people. I am doing them no harm. Do you, you think about how rich we are as Christians to go to bed at night and then by the grace of God endeavor to live this Christian life and to be able to put our head on the pillow knowing I am right with God and by His grace I only did good for every human being I ran into today by virtue of living the life that Christ has called me to live. Doesn't mean everybody's going to like us, but we have the peace of knowing that I did right to them 
then God will have to take it the rest of the way as it relates uh, to their uh, lives. And that is a priceless uh, characteristic of life. I don't know about you. I trust you're like me. I never, ever look longingly at my old life. Not one thing. I mean, I look longingly at being younger when I could eat a whole thing of Oreo cookies or a whole box of donuts without any physical crisis occurring as a result of it. You put me in a room with a dozen Mr. T's donuts and I might not come out alive. I have to go in with supervision, that kind of thing. But I never look back in, at the, my former life and, and uh, smack my lips at it. The blessing of this one is just so great, the sense of privilege that's involved in it. And so this beautiful passage, Jesus is the vine, the Father is the husbandman, husbandman, and for the purpose of producing fruit in our lives, it occurs as we abide in Jesus and this beautiful revelation for how abiding occurs practically within our lives. Let me pray for us now. Thank you, Jesus, for your words. Thank you for this upper room discourse. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit you brought this to John's remembrance so that this might be a part of our life and our relationship with you just as it was with them. We want you to know that as best as we know how to say it and as best as we and as far as we have explored the Christian life, we are so grateful for it, grateful for the fact that not only you forgave us, not only have given us everlasting life, but then in all of this you made a way for a relationship, a relationship that means everything to us with yourself. Thank you tonight for that relationship. Thank you for this needed instruction on how to keep it healthy and allow you to use us for your glory and to pour out the abundance of your love upon our lives in just the way that you desire. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.